Are you tired of your valuable ideas and suggestions getting lost in the shuffle? Well, that is why I'm introducing Direct Suggest, the revolutionary digital suggestion box that puts your voice front and center. With Direct Suggest, you have the power to make a difference in your organization. Direct Suggest provides value to organizations in various industries worldwide, including notable brands like Comcast, TD Bank, and Nokia. And here's the best part. Direct Suggest only costs 50 cents per employee per month, making it an affordable solution for businesses of all sizes. Plus, they have an incredibly high ROI and savings potential with an average 33 times return on investment. The implementation process is also a breeze. Once committed, setting up Direct Suggest from start to finish can be completed in as quickly as a week or less. Don't let your ideas or your team's ideas go unnoticed. Visit directsuggest.com today and start by making a difference with Direct Suggest. Use the promo code HUMANHR for your extended 60-day free trial. Again, visit directsuggest.com to learn more and remember to use promo code HUMANHR for an extended free trial. Direct Suggest, where your voice matters. Welcome to the Bringing the Human Back to Human Resources podcast. I'm Tracy Chernoff, and I've spent my entire professional career in HR. Each week, we'll explore the delicate balance between people and business with the aim to reconnect the two and create meaningful outcomes. Listen in as I share my own experiences, challenge the status quo, and chat with guests from various industries about our mission to bring the human back to human resources. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Bringing the Human Back to Human Resources podcast. I'm so excited that we are here for another week. And this episode and this guest are are two um, incredible I guess people topics that are going to uh, help us kind of break down how leadership and coaching and all of this kind of comes together and really break through leadership. So Mike Goldman is going to be the the guy that takes us through all of this, and you're going to hear all of the enthusiasm and passion that he has for this subject. And um, I just think in general, you're going to like this topic because we, as I've always said, we are all leaders in our own right, whether you have the title or not. So let me intro you to Mike. Mike Goldman is a leadership team coach and the best-selling author of two books, Breakthrough Leadership Team and Performance Breakthrough. He speaks internationally to groups of business leaders such as the Young Presidents Organization and the Entrepreneurs Organization. During his 30-plus year coaching and consulting career, he has worked with clients including Disney, Verizon, Chanel, and Polo Ralph Lauren. His insights have been featured in Forbes, Fast Company, and Chief Executive Magazine, and he is widely regarded by CEOs as the expert on building great leadership teams. As both coach and speaker, Mike is on a mission to help CEOs grow their business and have more impact while creating a more engaging, fulfilling environment for their team using his breakthrough leadership team approach. Mike is a lifelong learner. In fact, if he ever goes more than 90 minutes without recommending a book. He often tells his clients that they should dial 911 because there might be a serious issue. And finally, just so everyone knows what to do right after hearing uh, Mike's intro here, it's that he started his own podcast just a little while ago called The Better Leadership Team Show. So make sure that at the end of this podcast, or even now, if you have your phone out, that you subscribe to Mike's podcast because I haven't listened yet because I just learned that he started this podcast, but I'm really excited to listen and I'm sure it's going to be amazing. So Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Tracy, thank you for having me. Of course. Well, I love um, personally this story and this anecdote that, you know, you're a lifelong learner and that if you've gone more than 90 minutes without recommending a book for someone to read or for your clients to read, that they should immediately call the authorities. So um, (laughs) tell me, like, where did this lifelong learning passion start? You know, it's funny. When I was in school many, 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 many years ago, um, I, I didn't want, I was there to have fun. I did well in school, but I'd cram for tests at the very end. Um, but it, it, and you know, so I didn't really care much about learning. It was only after I graduated that to me, learning became so important and, and, you know, started reading a little bit more after I graduated. But, uh, when I, I was for half my career in management consulting and frankly, it was important to learn stuff, but but it, it's in the last half of my career, the last 18 years or so that I've been an entrepreneur that I've realized if I don't keep learning, I'm not able to continue to add val- value for my clients in the way 
I know I can add value and need to add value. So on the one hand, I absolutely love it. Like for me, fun is picking up a book and learning something new, but I also know how important it is for my business. So the cool part is kind of the, the business stuff and the stuff I have fun doing overlap. So to me, you know, learning, if you're not, if you're not learning and growing, you're dying. And, yes. and I try and, and, and impart that same wisdom to my leadership teams as well, but it's just so important to me. Absolutely. I love that. I, I would say that I subscribe to the same philosophy of lifelong learning. And I actually just did an episode, which is actually coming out this week when we're recording, but obviously our episode is coming out a number of weeks later around the, uh, you know, this concept of AI and replacing jobs, especially HR jobs, administrative jobs, and how how we can avoid the blockbuster effect as individuals. It's not just, you know, related to a company staying uh, progressive and constantly changing and adapting and adopting to new things, um, that this approach as an individual saying, okay, well, I'm never done learning. I'm never done growing. And I always have to keep moving forward and keep moving the needle forward is what will allow you to be more irreplaceable. So I like that it's kind of coming full circle here. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. And I look at, you know, and it's funny, you know, uh, and this can take us off on a whole tangent. We probably <laughs> won't go on, but I, I've heard people talk about chat GPT and, you know, all this AI stuff and, and they're, they're terrified of it. Like, oh, what could it become? You know, yeah. we're going to be a Terminator movie, not, not too far <laughs> out. But I look at all of this and, and I felt the same way about, you know, the internet way, way, way back is, you know, every new thing is kind of like fire. Fire could be used for good and fire could be used for evil. And I mm -hmm. think it's the same thing with AI and chat GPT. Uh, I think there are so many really exciting things we can do with it to, 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 to supplement our knowledge and our learning versus looking at it as, oh my God, it's going to take my job or my business away. Yes, I totally, totally agree. And you're right. We will not go down this tangent um, or into this rabbit hole, so to speak. We're going to focus on leadership teams and how, uh, you know, this concept of breakthrough leadership has kind of come about for you. So of course, in your intro, I shared that you are an author and that you've coached many, many teams um, and have been a consultant to many teams and notable teams at that. So how, what would you say, maybe it's not how, but what would you say are some of the similarities that you come across when it, when you do first um, kind of get that outreach to support, whether it's CEOs or leadership teams in general, to help them become more effective at what they do? Yeah, I think the, the first similarity is th there tends to be a really loose idea of, of what a team is. You know, a CEO, because mm. I, I typically work with CEOs and their leadership teams. And even though in the bio, I've got some really impressive clients there, that's exactly that. It's to impress everybody. It's all true, but that was kind of past life as a management consultant. These days I work more with small and mid-market companies who most people would not have heard of. But, mm -hmm. but the, one of the similarities is people believe, a CEO believes they have a leadership team because they have six people reporting to them. Having a bunch of people reporting to you does not mean you have a team. You know, they, they uh, you know, when I ask them how often they get together as a team, it may be a few times a year. When I ask them how they collaborate as a team, it's only on special projects where they, they work together. So, you know, and I'm not talking about little mom and, you know, $2 million, $5 million small companies. I'm talking about 50, 75 million, $150 million companies that don't truly have a leadership team. They have a CEO with a bunch of direct reports. Mm -hmm. So that is, is one of the key findings. And, and really from my way, way, way back, my time as a, as a management consultant to Fortune 500 companies to the last 18 or so years and working with more small and mid-sized companies as a coach, what I find is as the leadership team goes, so goes the company. 
It's not about having a great idea or a new technology. Now, granted, I work with companies that want to be sustainably great. Can you have some great new technology, chat GPT type technology with a pretty crappy leadership team um, and not a great culture, but you've got this great idea and in six months you're going to sell to Google for billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. If that's you, I want to meet you. Um, you're probably someone good to know, but those aren't the types of companies I work with. The companies that want to be sustainably great, and by sustainably great, I mean not only top and bottom line growth, but they they are creating fulfilling, growing environments. They're adding real value out there to society. For those companies, I don't believe you can have a great company without having a great leadership team. I totally agree. And I, as you were sharing this, I kind of had a feeling as to where you were going with that statement. And so I started to think about my next question for you, which is usually how my brain works. It's like, stay in the present, Tracy, stay in the present. But I just can't because I'm excited about this next question, which is, do you believe that CEOs are single-handedly responsible for creating a culture like that and creating opportunities that you've just described as far as being sustainably great, having this, uh, you know, flourishing environment where people can grow in this great culture? Does it start with them? It absolutely starts with them. If you ask me, do they own it? I would say, uh, I'll use kind of my, 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 the the little bit of improv training that I've done. I'll say yes. And which is a big improv thing where, you know, people, People like to, I have a lot of clients who, when I start working with them, they have nobody that owns the, the people function, the talent development function, the HR function, whatever you want to call it. They mm-hmm. may be 30, 40, 50 employees, and they're thinking, do we need someone to own that? And the, the misconception leadership teams have, I think, is that they say, well, we need to hire a head of HR who could own our culture. And make Mm -hmm. this culture thing happen. And Mm -hmm. I think that is incredibly dangerous. I think a head of HR, a head of talent, whatever title you're putting on it, um, I think they have a major, major role to play. I think they need to have a uh, a very, uh, uh, I think they have a very important, very strategic role on the leadership team in making that happen. But I believe that one of the key roles of the CEO is they own culture. They own creating that environment because I don't care how good a VP of HR you are. If the CEO is not modeling the way, if you have, just as an example, you have this great set of core values that you've created. That maybe you're, if you're a head of HR, maybe you had a really big hand to play in saying, you know, we need, we need a set of core values to anchor our culture and they need to be non-negotiable. So let's get together as a leadership team and figure it out. You could do that, do a wonderful job doing that. If the CEO does not model that, if the CEO not only allows behavior that violates your core values because because this is a salesperson that's bringing in 40% of revenue. I can't hold them accountable. I'm not going to fire them for for not living the core values or or worse, if you've got a CEO that is not living the values. Mm -hmm. I don't care how great a VP of HR you've got, it's not going to work. So I do think that that one of the most important jobs of the CEO is to own culture and own building the right team around them. Yeah, I totally agree. I completely agree. I have shared before on the podcast that I had a a former boss. She was an awesome leader to have, you know, through a lot of the growing moments in my career. And of course she was in HR because I've always been in HR and she always kind of challenged me that everyone contributes to the culture, which is true. Everyone does contribute to the culture. Um, But something that I also, that we never necessarily talked about and that I've definitely kind of broken down a little bit on the podcast is that 
while everyone contributes to the culture, if the culture is not championed by our, you know, the, the head of state, so to speak, like whether it's the CEO or, you know, whoever is, you know, the president, whoever is really leading the company forward, that those, you know, whatever everyone else is contributing is not really going to have as much of an impact. It will have an impact maybe on a micro scale within a team, um, but top down, there's so much importance and so much impact whether uh, when someone uh, is is owning or understanding their impact and, and whether or not they understand that. And so, you know, of course, I've seen CEOs throughout my experience who do an amazing job of really representing what everyone else is looking to drive and is, you know, kind of where all of that starts. And then I've seen CEOs who don't really understand that they do have such an impact. Like while everyone else might really care about the culture or the way that the teams feel, so to speak, it, there are moments where CEOs are not necessarily saying, well, you know, I have to practice what I preach or I have to also kind of lead the way. And when you were talking before about, um, you know, this understanding of CEOs and direct reports and that it's, you know, it's more than that. It's not just about who's reporting into you and what titles they hold. I was thinking about how there are um, breakdowns sometimes within leadership teams as far as how they um, promote and own the feeling and the culture within the organization. So let's say, for example, a CEO is, you know, maybe maybe like on the line of like they they get it. They know that they drive that they own the culture. They own everything that happens within their business. But maybe they are not seeing the full breadth of their impact and their leadership team follows in suit. Would you say that there's, you know, or maybe it's not, maybe the question isn't, would you, would you agree with this, but rather what happens if there is this, you know, the team wants a culture that's like X, but the leadership team between, you know, that first line of leadership and the CEO are not necessarily even practicing that or modeling that. What happens? Yeah, the, the, it's a great question. I believe culture cascades down through an organization. I don't believe it's a grassroots thing. Mm. It cascades down. If you are proactively defining what you want your culture to look like, feel like, it's going to cascade down. And what I mean by that specifically is we already talked about the fact that it's got to start with the CEO. Yeah. But I also believe that the culture of the company is a reflection, sometimes a blurry reflection, but a reflection of the leadership team culture. And, mm. and real quick story. So I had a client I went into about five years ago, big leadership team of about, uh, it was nine people. Mm. And I walked into the room and I do these two-day quarterly planning sessions with my leadership teams. And I walked into the room and all they were doing was complaining about morale out there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we do all these great things for our employees and yet they're so, uh, you know, ungrateful and, and this one left and this one's complaining. And so I said, so I had a sense what the issue was and my mm -hmm. hunch was right. So I said, I said, let's do something. I said, uh, I said, let's do a quick, what's called an employee net promoter score. Within this room, and, and if your listeners don't know what a net promoter score is, it, it's a system actually with, with a very simple question, which is, you know, on a scale of, of zero to 10, how likely are you to refer this company to someone you know? And you could ask that of your clients, you could ask that to your employees. So, so I had them do a secret ballot of how likely are you to refer working here to someone you know? Now, these are the nine most important leaders of the company. Mm -hmm. And their average score, now a net promoter score is, there's a calculation behind it, but I'm <laughs> going to simplify it for now sure. and just talk about average. Their average score was a five out of 10. Oof. Now I looked at this team and I said, I am not going to spend one second helping you solve the problem out there until we solve the problem in here. The culture for good or bad emanates from the leadership team. It's modeled 
starts from the, the owner, CEO, president, whatever the title is. But I have never seen in my now 35 plus year career, I have never seen a culture get get better or more empowering, whatever positive word you want to put on it. I've never seen a culture improve as you cascade down through the organization. If a culture on a leadership team, and we could talk if you want specifically about how I would define what culture is, but if the culture on your leadership team is mediocre, it's going to be really bad by the time you get down to the more junior levels. If the culture on the leadership team is great, if you're not careful, it may get mediocre as you go down, but, but it's only going to get worse and not better. And if you proactively do a great job and here's where the HR function comes in big time, because a big part of HR's job is to make sure you're taking that great culture from the leadership team and saying, what do we need to do to cascade it down? If you do a great job of cascading it down, Maybe if your culture is a nine out of 10 on the leadership team, you do a great job of cascading down. Maybe it becomes an eight out of 10 down at the lowest levels. If you do a crappy job of cascading it down, maybe it's a six or a seven. But if it's a five out of 10 at a leadership team, you're probably a one out of 10 by the time, by the time you go down. So that's another example of as the leadership team goes, so goes the company. I think it starts from the leadership team. That is such a compelling, not only story, but uh, example, because, you know, as I shared what my uh, former leader shared, it does challenge that notion that everyone contributes to the culture. Obviously, everyone does because we all contribute. But when we forget about contribution and we think about ownership and where it starts, it's really a very good point that you make that if the leadership team has a... a you know, has a breakdown, has a, a tension or friction point, and they don't have good morale, how on earth could the other teams or their teams as it cascades have a good experience and have a good culture? And it's really, um, I, I want to come back to this original point that you made, that it's not a grassroots effort. Because if we even think about, you know, driving culture at a grassroots level, it feels heavy. It should feel very taxing to think about how, you have to uh, interact with 100 or depending on the size of the company, 100, 550 employees to drive culture rather than starting at the top with the people who are making the most decisions, influencing the most direction, probably speaking with the most employees day to day. I mean, it's a really, really good point. And it's not lost on me that this idea of ownership is goes beyond the HR function. And I appreciate all that you said about that not only understanding, but that model, because there we definitely hear um, leaders, whether they're CEOs or not, say that, oh, well, you know, we have, you know, HR at the table, let's, let's have HR own it. Um, but w- the problem there is that it also then feels like a grassroots effort, because then you have one person in the HR seat trying to figure out how to drive culture when the problem could be that there is poor morale within the leadership team or a lack of um, ownership in terms of how that culture and that focus is modeled. So it's a really interesting and really good point, I think. Yeah, and I think it minimizes the importance of culture, the strategic importance of culture to say, oh, that's just an HR thing. Yes. And I don't mean that in a negative way about HR. And I think I think HR in a lot of companies is viewed too tactically and it is strategic, but I would say the same thing if it was sales or marketing, but it's not about one person or one department within the organization. Uh, There may be one partner, one department that really helps to drive it, but it's not just, oh, let's just pawn it off on this department. It's important enough that the entire leadership team needs to be behind it, championing it with that number one champion being CEO, president, owner, whatever right. the title is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think it's definitely well-placed. It, it's certainly not a negative for HR not to own this or that it, it's not a statement on HR's uh, capabilities. I think, And I agree that there are companies that definitely see the HR function as it is, which is strategic. And then there are companies that 
further minimize HR to be this very administrative, only operational and tactical uh, function, which really just means that we're not being leveraged to our fullest uh, potential. So it's a, a really good point that culture is and has to be important to every single person on that team. And I'm curious, like, so you, we've talked about some of the similarities between companies when there are, you know, when there is this kind of conversation around how we can model and drive forward this positive and sustainable culture. Are there um, significant differences as well in that have you worked with CEOs who are doing like the, just an incredible job of modeling and placing the importance that on their role as far as having that impact within their own organization that you can share? If your company is remote or hybrid, then you know just how difficult it can be to grow your company's culture beyond a pre-scheduled Zoom happy hour or occasional lunch and learn. Well, this week's sponsor is here to solve that. They're called CultureBot. CultureBot has devised what will likely become the gold standard for growing and blossoming a company culture inside of Slack. The app is like a sidekick for any HR or people professional, automating a lot of the mundane tasks you probably are forgetting to do on a daily basis. Things like birthday and work anniversary celebrations, team shout outs and kudos, employee introductions, and remote games. It even has health and wellness tips and conversation starters. If that piques your interest, this will get you even more excited. Today, I'm able to share a special promotion for listeners of the podcast. You can get your first six months of CultureBot for 50% off. Plus, if your team is under 25 employees, CultureBot is free forever. So if you're looking for a way to create a culture of appreciation and drive increased engagement and togetherness across your team, I definitely recommend checking out CultureBot. Go to getculturebot.com slash humanhr. That's getculturebot.com slash humanhr to get the offer. Plus, I've added the link in the show notes, so you can just click right there. Now, let's get back to the podcast. Absolutely. Absolutely. There. And, and one example is a client I work with who happens to also be a, a, a guest on my podcast for this exact Ooh. reason is um, it, it's, it's my, my longest running client. It's a client I've been working with for over eight years now. Wow. And they were, they were totally virtual before it was the thing to be virtual. They, they have mm -hmm. been was cool. mostly virtual for, for about 12 years, fully virtual for about seven or eight years. Wow. That wow. was one of my first coachings to the CEO. Like, why do you still have that one loan office? Get rid of it. Go fully virtual. And you would think, you know, one of the things that can suffer, and we've probably, we've probably all seen how in a, a virtual environment or a hybrid environment, as a lot of us are in these days, uh, culture could absolutely self suffer if we're not careful. The work can get done. Productivity may not take a hit. In some cases, productivity gets better because we could, you know, because mm -hmm. we could focus but but culture takes a hit if we're not careful. And the interesting thing about the thing about this client is, of all of my clients, their culture over the years has probably been the strongest, and they've been virtual totally for for seven or eight years. And I think it's by the very nature of the fact that they were virtual, they knew they needed to work harder on it. They spent yeah. a lot more time. Uh, uh, living their core values versus it just being a plaque on the wall. They spent a lot of time building up kind of their vulnerability and the, and, and their trust of each other, the ability to be open and honest with each other. They spent a lot of time and here's some, here's a place where I think HR can be a major driver. One of the things they have done a great job of uh, with my coaching, but they own it is assessing and developing their talent over time with not just developing how could we be more pr productive, but assessing and developing their talent as it relates to whether people are a fit with their core values and what kind of coaching they need on their core values. What I mean by that is, so, so there is, there's a tool that I've developed that helps my clients every quarter assess who is performing at an A level, B level, C level, and what I call a toxic C level. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's based on productivity. It's based on 
living the core values or fit within the culture. And this particular client has done such an amazing job picking out those folks that may be performing at a high level from a productivity standpoint, but not living the culture and just confronting that, confronting that again from the top down. And that's the CEO confronting it with the leadership team. It's the leadership team confronting it with the next level down. They have just done an amazing job. And my clients whose, whose cultures suffer are the ones that are that that put a much greater weight on productivity and a lesser weight on fit within culture hmm. and their culture suffers and because their culture suffers morale suffers their ability to to keep their high performing folks their ability to, to attract high performing folks really suffers. So culture is not just this soft, squishy thing. Is everybody happy? Um, Mm -hmm. I think culture has a monster impact on your, your, what I would call your talent density as an organization, your ability to, 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 to hire, keep, develop a players, your ability to coach your C players up or, or coach them out. Uh, sure. That's all part of of really owning that culture, and my clients that have done it well really take that talent piece very seriously. Yeah, I really like that that example or that understanding of like talent density. And of course, I mean every environment is going to have that toxic C uh, level, and it's a matter of how businesses and leaders really work to either coach them up or coach them out. To your point. And not letting that kind of exist for too long, but on the on the same side of things, when you have that a performer, a talent, how are you supporting them? How are you driving them forward? How are you giving them more opportunities? How are they supported in the same way? So much of um, what kind of comes into performance and talent discussions sometimes spend it, it focuses all of this time on like the poor performers and the people who are kind of carrying or dr- dragging the culture dra- down dragging the the company backwards right like it's there's it takes so much energy and so much time to talk about those those toxic or underperformers when really they're not the majority they're not even close to even the the the, the average uh, person most most of the time in most companies, and so then I, I find at least in my experience that leaders sometimes forget that they have all of these amazing people at the top of their you know roster who are just ready and willing to take on more to do more to be acknowledged for that, and there has to be not just a balance but a almost like an awareness of where we spend our most energy or or most of our energy, I should say. And if we're spending all of our energy on those who are not giving us that same interest and energy back, then there has to be a decision made. Either they're not the right person for the role in the company, or they have the potential to be that person for the company. So it's, it's, I appreciate what you're saying around like focusing on the talent density and what that makeup looks like within a company. Yeah. And what I love about what you just said, I'm I'm with you a thousand percent, is that very often as leaders, our attitude towards our A players is, oh, thank God I have Tracy. She's an A player. I don't have to worry about Tracy. I can go focus over here. That is the worst thing you can do for someone performing at a high level. Worst thing you can do. I have seen more A players leave out of boredom than mm-hmm. anything else. And by the way, let me be clear. Boredom doesn't mean they're not working hard. Boredom means they're not being challenged. I can remember years ago, I had a CFO I was working with, and this is tough. This is in my book. And, and my CFO read the book and realized I was talking Uh-oh. about him. And I was like, oh, and he's <laughs> oh, like, oh, crap. I thought you had a good career. And I was like, oh, no, oh, crap. But, <laughs> but I had a, I, so I worked for, this was many years ago. And, and I was, God, I was about 30 years old and still kind of, I still feel like I'm on the upward tick of my career and I'm 58, but I was 30 years old and I just knew I had a lot of growth to do. And he sat me down 
and gave me the annual performance review. And I kid you not, this was the annual performance review. Hey, Mike, you're doing a great job. Keep it up. Oh, God. That was the moment I decided I was not going to last long at that company. Yeah. yeah. Because we need to challenge our A players. We need to give them more responsibility. We need to coach them. We need to develop them. We need to re-recruit them. We need to, you know, don't wait yeah. for an exit interview to find out why they left. Have a stay interview now. Yes. You need to be spending most of your time with your A players. And, and we don't do that for two reasons. We don't do that either because we don't think it's important or I have worked with clients where we don't do that because we have so many low performers mm. that, that we're, we're busy cleaning up that mess. Well, the, one of the most important ways you could take care of your A players is to coach or cut the cord on your C players. Oh, absolutely. Because they're the, the A players are the ones who are feeling the burden of the C players the most. I mean, they're the ones who are picking up the slack, doing the work that they're not doing, cleaning up the messes that the leader is not necessarily, or the leader above the A player is not necessarily seeing. It is, a, it's a hundred percent true. I mean, those, those A players are really the ones who are, uh, again, like driving the organization forward and, and same with the B players. I mean, for sure they, you know, they have that potential too, but the A players are the ones who are taking so much pride in their work that they're not going to let a C player you know, kind of tarnish that, whatever that is for them. And so they're taking on that much more work. And it's really, it's really a good point about how, and I love that you shared your own story and that your former CFO read that in your book, because it probably was a huge learning moment for them. Um, and, you know, really the, the takeaway that I have from that story is that there are most of the time, I'm going to go ahead and say that the majority of the time, the A players are not given that type of attention because of what, you know, those two things that you mentioned, either they don't think it's important or, you know, because they, it, there's just this kind of error about, oh, well, they're going to be able to maintain and manage where they are. And I'm spending all of this time trying to figure out these C players. And, you know, this is also where HR departments have to really be able to support other leaders in the businesses. We can't make it a taxing and, uh, lengthy process to move through someone who is not contributing the way they should be to an organization. Now, of course, the larger the business, the more uh, risk averse they are typically in my experience. And so there are more, you know, hoops to jump through, but HR teams have to be the advocates, not only for those A players, but also the leaders who are also burdened by these, um, you know, C-level players. So, you know, for those listening, that that is a huge uh, way for us to influence moving this needle forward in a way that doesn't feel so taxing. Like we have to make documentation quick. We have to support leaders in this and we have to be able to have the uh, process in place where it doesn't take six months for someone to either be managed out or managed uh, to their fullest potential. And leaders, regardless of whether they're in HR or not, also have to place that same importance of, uh, in terms of the timing in their, uh, in their approach in managing these C-level players too, because if they don't manage them quickly enough, then they, that is again, where we see those top, the top talent taking the hit and suffering the most. And so I, I really, you know, just kind of come to come back to this original point around boredom does not equal lack of productivity. It's really true. I'm sure there are many listeners, including myself, thinking about, you know, how there have been times in our careers where we were super productive, but we weren't being challenged and we were just waiting and asking for that next or newest challenge while our leaders are spending so much time focusing on those who are barely being productive. So I appreciate you sharing that boredom does not necessarily mean that someone is quiet quitting or, or not doing the work that they need to do. It's that they have to have something that is giving them more. And then I, I think I, I just want to close by asking, you know, do you, do you feel that there is a, a maybe it's like a um, disproportionate amount of work that's placed on A players when they are given new challenges? And is there a way 
to mitigate that so that they're not also overworked while they're, you know, they, they are challenged, but not overworked. And the leader understands how the work needs to be distributed. Cause I think that's important too. Yeah. I think, I think they are overburdened. And what happens is, you know, for some folks, what that means is they go from performing at a level to performing at a B level. Right. Either because they're overburdened or because they're looking at around at all these underperformers that are either very low in productivity or, or not living the culture the way uh, they've been told is, a, is required. And they start saying, why am I working so hard? If all these mm. people are, you know, half-assing it and they've still got a right. job, why am I working so hard? True Now, true A players are not then going to say, I'm going to work less hard. What they're going to do is they're going to start looking for another job. Yeah. And, and I think one, one interesting way to deal with that is, and, and, and I think this could, for a lot of companies, could be a major change to the way we think about HR. In fact, and this, uh, this may be sacrilegious to your show, so you may yell at me <laughs> when I say this. Feel free. I like being yelled at. <laughs> is I don't think we should call it HR anymore. I think human resources, it, it kind of leads us down the road of the 1970s, 1980s kind of way of thinking where it's like, well, yeah, you know, we, we, we've got our employee handbooks and we've got our benefits package and, yeah. you know, and, and it, it's the tactical view of HR. And, you know, even to the point of, how do you measure success of HR? Well, it's, you know, how long did it take to, for you to hire someone? You know, what's that cycle to, to hire? Some, I mean, and that's not, I mean, yeah, that's important. But I think what that results in is HR not playing the strategic role they should. It results in HR, to your point of not making it so hard to, to cut the cord on an underperformer, mm -hmm. HR kind of views their job as to protect the organization. Mm. Kind of the same way legal views their job mm -hmm. is to protect the organization. And of course, it's every leader's job to protect the organization. But, but I, I want to advocate to HR's job, major job, being about talent development, being about improving talent density. And I actually calculate talent density as percent of A players minus percent of C players. In, so you could score anywhere from negative 100% to positive 100%. Mm. I think if we looked at HR's job and even changed the title to be VP of talent management, talent development, you know, call it what you want. But if we mm. viewed HR's job is about improving talent density, then all of a sudden, instead of HR saying, we've got to protect the company and, you know, we need to see three, someone needs three write-ups and then they need to go on a PIP and then they need to do this. And maybe a year and a half after they're underperforming, we could, you know, we can coach them out of the organization, you know, mm. or my job is just to hire people as quickly as I can. So I'm getting everybody off my back because I've got too many outstanding job wrecks out there. We've got hires. No, your job is to make sure we are maximizing our percent of A players within the organization, minimizing our percent of B of, of C players within the organization. We've got a process of coaching a development place to coach our B players to become A players. I think that's the way HR, if that's what we're still going to call it, that's mm -hmm. the way HR, I think, should view their role. That's a, I'm not sure there's anything more strategic than improving the talent within the organization, proving the talent from the people you hire to the people you're coaching out of the organization to coaching and developing the people you've got. For sure. I don't think it's sacrilegious at all. And while you you enjoy being yelled at, I'm not going to yell at you because Damn. I think there's so much <laughs> I think there's so much of that that I agree with. And you know, I'm really at like this ninety-nine percent mark and there's that one percent that I'll I'll mention. So ninety-nine percent, yes, I agree. That is the role of HR. There's that, you know, understanding that we are the ones who have to guide the 
the organization in how we assess talent, how talent is structured, what we prioritize, what we care about, what we don't prioritize, what makes a toxic or C player, what makes an A player, like all of that has to live with HR and fundamentally, because otherwise you have, you know, head of sales or head of uh, whatever teams, right? They're they have their own beliefs and assessment, but that doesn't, then you're assessing people on two totally different scales. And that's really where the importance of HR being that calibrator and that objective line comes in. So I completely agree with that. I think there are just, you know, the nature of business. Uh, There are places where HR has to be more tactical. Like there has to be this ownership on payroll and benefits and things like that because no one else will be able to to do it or care about it so that's the one percent for me otherwise i a hundred percent agree with you uh on the how the, uh, the how for hr being more strategic and it's funny because i will probably never change the title of my podcast it's bringing the human back to human resources but i agree i think human resources is this vague strange title that no one really can understand like i my very first episode i joked that my grandmother who's going to be 98 this year you know, still has no idea what I do. And by the way, I spoke with her yesterday and she still has no idea what I do. So, well, in her day, it was, in her day, it was probably called personnel. So just tell her you work in personnel. In her day, there might not have even been (laughs) anyone (laughs) managing that at all. That's true. But it's, but it's true. It was, it was personnel and then it moved to human resources and now we're seeing people operations. There is nothing that I, hate more than seeing HR and operations as the same title for a department. Because certainly there are people in HR or talent or people, whatever, who do the operational stuff, but not the department is not an operational department. Like we, you know, so often I hear, oh, well, HR and this other team are cost centers. I mean, do we really have to go back to how when you focus on people and you drive people and their their career development and their their uh, satisfaction in the company, how that drives profit? Do we really have to come back to this? Like that's always what I think because if we if businesses see HR as a cost center, then we're we're already the writing is in the sand. We've already lost you know the first battle because it's it, we have to see that it's more than this tactical thing that costs money and more of the thing or the you know system and function that can drive profits because the better talent we have the more satisfied they are the more challenged they are the better they're going to do i mean it to me it feels really innate and intrinsic but sometimes i feel like i'm talking to a wall when i yeah, and it's a, hear, and know? it's the same the same companies that say people are our greatest asset but right. hr is a cost center wait a minute <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a second. <laughs> I know a little bit about finance and those two things don't seem to go together. Yeah. It's so funny. That's a really good point. It, it is always those companies. It's so true. I mean, I, I realize that we are coming up on our time here, but I've had such a blast speaking with you about this topic and I, I've gotten in so many good giggles throughout our last uh, 45 minutes, but I, I kind of just want to wrap us up here and and ask you a super, super open-ended, vague question. You could take it wherever you want, which is today, if someone is listening to this episode and they're like, wow, I'm really inspired by what Mike has shared and I want to be the CEO or the leader one day that drives and models culture, what do they have to start with? What can they start doing today, even if they're not in that role, to be able to get to that place where they are this pinnacle of you know, driving talent density and culture? Yeah, I think you, it, it all really starts with self-leadership, no matter where you are, right? In my, in, in my last book, which is called Breakthrough Leadership Team, I talk about these six pillars of creating a great leadership team. And the first pillar is self-leadership. And that, I don't care whether you're the CEO or you're an accounts payable clerk or a new HR rep just hired out of school or whatever it is. It's got to start with you managing your own focus, right? Because if, you know, we we can't always change the situation we're in, but we could always change how we focus on it. 
So it's got to start with you managing your own focus. It's got to start with you. I call it focus, fire, and and coachability. So it's it's focus. Uh, the fire is is how do you keep that fire burning in your belly? So and it's part of the reason why I we we started off this podcast. We'll go in a big circle to why learning is so important to me. Learning keeps that fire going in my belly to 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 to, to always realize there's a lot more that I don't know than I know. And it keeps the fire burning and that motivation to do more and be more. And then the last thing I'd say is, you know, we talk a lot, and especially in an HR type discussion, you know, I'm sure you've had uh, uh, whole episodes about coaching and what it means Mm -hmm. to coach people. But we don't talk a lot about what it takes to be coachable ourselves. And again, I don't care if you're the CEO or you're a brand new, you know, HR rep, the the most important thing you can be is coachable, is realizing you don't know everything, asking for feedback, uh, saying thank you, whether you agree with that feedback or not, just thanking someone for being open and honest for you and giving you feedback. So I think it all, it all really starts with self-leadership. I love it. Thank you so much, Mike. I mean, I feel like I'm walking into today feeling super inspired and motivated to think about my role so differently, but also feeling totally validated in the way that I already see my role in career. So I'm sure that the listeners are feeling the same way. And I really and sincerely hope that those who are not in HR who listen are walking away thinking, wow, I I have to own this too. I'm listening to this podcast because I want to know how to own it better. Um, So I really appreciate your leadership on this and all of your expertise. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Again, for everyone, um, before I let Mike tell you where you can find him, and you'll see all of that in the show notes, remember to subscribe to his podcast, which is called The Better Leadership Team Show, and I will link it also in the show notes. So Mike, where can others connect with you and read your books? Yeah. No, number one, you mentioned is the Better Leadership Team Show. Number two, uh, Breakthrough Leadership Team, whether you are already a leader CEO on the leadership team or you aspire to be one one day breakthrough leadership team is a great place to go Um, and if you want to follow me either on uh, Instagram or YouTube my handle is at Mike Goldman coach amazing and again that will all be linked in the show notes so you can navigate there and click all the links Mike thank you so much for your time and best of luck with your podcast I'm sure it's amazing thank you Tracy Hey, just before you go, don't forget to subscribe to the show so that you are the first to hear when an episode drops each week. And maybe leave a five-star review and a comment about how much you loved this episode. Plus, if you have someone in mind who would really enjoy this episode, make sure you share it with them. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I'll see you next week.